Acts chapter 9. Follow along with me. We're going to pick up in verse 20 and we're going to read down to verse 31. Acts 9, chapter 20. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be astounded and were saying, Is this not the one who in Jerusalem tried to destroy those that called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to put him to death. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates night and day so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was actually a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and recounted to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and spoken to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were still attempting to put him to death. And when the brothers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria was having peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and it continued to multiply. Bow your head with me just for one more second. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time and for this place. Thank you for yourself. Thank you for your life and your righteousness that you offer us as a free gift by grace through faith in your name, not to be earned, not merit, not climbing, not any sort of religious effort whatsoever, Lord, you offer us everything that we need freely. Lord, give us more and more a heart of affection for you and to give our lives more and more up to you, trustingly and lovingly. You have given it all up for us. Lord, I pray that that inspires us to do the same. Day by day, help us to grow in your word and in your likeness. It's in your name that we pray, King Jesus. Amen. So, <clears throat> I was thinking about, about this, this tonight. Um, by the way, we are going to finish chapter 9 tonight, but it's a lengthy piece of scripture, so I just wanted to read the first half of it, and then we'll take the last two sections when we, when we get there. But what, we've, what I was thinking is, it, the main thrust through Acts that we've hit on again and again and again in, in varying ways and from varying angles and vantage points is that Jesus Christ is working. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is active. Jesus Christ is powerful. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh coming to seek and to save sinners, building up a kingdom for eternity, a kingdom that is not only his, his eternal and uninterrupted rule, no more sin, uh, no more death, no more decay, never a possibility of that ever happening again, but it's also a kingdom that's made up of specific individuals. And we've seen specific individuals get saved throughout the book of Acts up until this point, and that's Jesus building his kingdom through the power of his spirit here on earth, living stones that build up the temple of Almighty God, and that is us, you and me, individual Christians. And it's juxtaposed against the world's order of, of conquering 
and of pride and of hubris and of self-exaltation. The entire Old Testament is full of kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. All human history is kingdom after kingdom rising up with blood and sword and, and, and battle strategies and tactics to kill other people for the sake of accruing power and land and resources and all the rest. But the way that Jesus builds his kingdom is very different. The way that Jesus builds his kingdom is not only different, but it absolutely makes no sense to us most of the time. Jesus being dead on the cross is not a good way to sell confidence with somebody. You see that on the surface and, and a, a dead savior, a crucified king, it, it, it doesn't compute in the human mind. But Jesus came and defeated sin and death not, and, and is establishing his kingdom not by killing and not by battle strategy, but by sacrificing himself on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He never sinned in word, thought, or deed. He's overqualified for death. And three days after his crucifixion, he raised from the dead, proving that he is God in the flesh. He is who he claimed to be, that his sacrifice was sufficient to, for propitiation to save us from our sins, that his sacrifice qualified for every sin that every human has ever committed from the beginning of time until the end of time. Jesus is sufficient. And his resurrection is proof of life that he has, and it's a taste of what he offers us now and that we'll be able to enjoy for all of eternity. And the way that Jesus continues to move through human history and build up his church and build up his kingdom does not make sense, but it has proven effective to this very day, and it will continue to prove effective. The church in the, early, in the early books of Acts experiences legal rebuttal. They experience beatings. They experience imprisonment. There's even the death of Stephen, and the church continues to flourish. It is not, it is not thwarted. It is not diluted. It is not hurt. Every tragedy and every persecution and trial that, that approaches on the church proves to only make it grow faster and wider and broader. And my hope is that we would be encouraged by that. If there's, if there's something that I hope we can take away, if there's something that I pray to God, I have been able to communicate to you for the last, I mean, not just the last six months that we've been going through Acts, but for the last two years that we've been doing Night Church, is that you would be encouraged. That you would be encouraged that Jesus is risen. That you would be encouraged that Jesus rose from the dead, and that is the absolute proof and evidence that that is the hope that you have because of what he has done. Not what we have done, but the hope that we have in him. That is my hope. My prayer is that I've been able somehow to encourage you in that way. And the text that we have tonight is a, is a continuation of encouragement in a couple of different ways. Saul, who was the one persecuting members of the church to the death, is now one church member who is being persecuted to the death. That's what Jesus does to people. He flips them around. You repent. You go the exact opposite direction, and that is manifested, I don't think, anywhere greater than in the life of Saul. He was one who was, he came to Damascus to find Christians, to hunt them down, to take man and wife out of their homes and lead them away in chains. Somebody that I wouldn't have a whole lot of good things to, to say about. But he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and he was saved. And that should be an encouragement to us. And so Saul now becomes this, this ravenous, 
hateful. Remember it, it said that Saul was breathing threats towards the church and we talked about that Greek word to breathe is not to exhale but to inhale. The very energy that Saul was taking into himself, his reason for getting out of bed in the morning, his motivation, his goal, his, his reason for living was to kill and to incarcerate Christians. And now he has become the absolute, he's become ravenous for the gospel, unstoppable. That should encourage us. Jesus changes people. And so now he's let loose. He's become saved and behaved, and now he starts proclaiming the gospel. Verse 20, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the son of God. And, and since this is, this is our last meeting tonight, I, I want to take a minute just to sort of review some theology. Uh, this term, son of God, if you were here this morning, I was preaching on the Palm Sunday, Jesus going into Jerusalem the week before he the, the week of his, of, of, his, of his death, his last week of his earthly ministry, he's riding on a donkey, going to Jerusalem, and the people cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. And here Saul is proclaiming that Jesus is the son of God. There's, there's, these, there's these different terms and names uh, that, that, that refer to Jesus, and they're beautiful. And three of the top ones that you'll see, there's, Jesus is called all sorts of, of things that have an incredible depth of meaning. But three of the most common ones that we see in Scripture is Son of God, Son of David, and what Jesus referred to himself the most as, and most of the time when Jesus referred to himself, he called himself the Son of Man. And so I want to just take a minute to talk about the three of those briefly. This isn't going to be a real deep dive, uh, but it's good for us to know. And these, these three distinct titles for Jesus are unique to themselves. They each mean something specific, but there's also a lot of overlap between the three of them. This, this term, Son of God, if, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see uh, that the term son of, son of God is actually not strictly used for Jesus. Angels are referred to as Son of God. Israel, ironically, Israel is referred to as Son of God and also the Bride of Christ, which has a whole nother depth of meaning. But Jesus is the Son of God in the sense, not, not, not like us. Romans says the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are sons of God. And if we are sons of God, then we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. But we are created beings. Jesus was never created. He never had a beginning. He is the eternal Word of God that has existed for all of eternity past. He is, he, he is deity. He is God in human flesh. We are sons and daughters of God in a secondary sense. We are adopted into the family of God. Christ has always been in relationship with the Father. And he uses the terminology as son. Mark chapter 1, it is baptism. The, heaven breaks, the heavens break open and the Father calls out, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In Matthew 17, the Mount of, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is transformed in glory before three of his Disciples and Peter's running his mouth like he usually does. And I'm not, I'm not casting shade on him because I got a big mouth myself, but the skies break open. That, that ethereal space between heaven and earth that we just don't really know anything about breaks open and the voice of Father God cries out, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Of course, famously, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. This speaks to the relationship, the unique relationship to the Father that Jesus has. It is eternal and it is spiritual. 
Jesus was never created. He did not have a beginning like you and I had a beginning. He took on human flesh. He did become something that he hadn't been before, but Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, has never began. John chapter 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is the, the beauty of the arithmetic of heaven. It doesn't make sense to us, but it's a beautiful reality that, that Jesus is the Word of God. He was with God and he was God. How are you with someone and are someone at the same time? You're with someone and you are that someone. This is the beauty of the mystery of our triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons unified in their deity for all of eternity. Different in economy, but the same in their essence and in their nature. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. They are each individual persons, but they make up one God. We are not tritheists. It's not one God taking on three different modes. It's not like me, the pastor, me, the father, me, the husband. I'm the same person with different roles. That's, that's, that's not what's being communicated here. One God, three distinct persons. Jesus is being declared here the son of God. <clears throat> son of man. You know, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is referred to as son of man 93 times. But that reference is to, you're literally a son of man, you're a human being. The word man, Adam, means human. It's the very first man ever created, Adam, his, his name meant human. Ezekiel was just a son of man, he was a creature. He was born of people. Jesus was truly human and truly God at the same time. There's this, and it, again, I can't compute that. We can't compute that. It's what the Bible teaches and we just have to take it on faith. There's this beautiful image in Daniel chapter 7. When, when Jesus said, I am the son of man, when he referred to himself with that title, some think that it was just him referring to his human nature, and there is an element to which that is true. But it's really him claiming a messianic title. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel has a vision, and he says, I saw one like a son of man ascend to the ancient of days and take the throne at the right-hand side of the Father, this one like a son of man, this one who is full deity, truly God, takes on true human flesh and is truly human. And this is Jesus. He is the son of man. He is, the, he is the son of God. He is the son of man. He is God in human flesh, never created, but taking on an incarnation. And this is what that title is. Jesus is actually saying that prophecy in Daniel 7, that's who I am. I am the one who sits on the throne with the ancients of days. And Jesus calls, Jesus is also called the son of David. And this links Jesus to the kingly line of David throughout Old Testament history, one from the line of David, the royal line, the, the regal bloodline is where Jesus would come from. And in that, in that human element, in that human sense, that is true. Jesus descended from David. And so he is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would come from the line of David but he was far much more than anyone ever imagined that he would actually be. He's from the line of David, but he is incarnate God. God in human flesh. Beautiful and mysterious. It just goes to prove that, he didn't, that the Lord did not create us because he needed company or because he needed praise or because he needed worship. He created us to share in the community that he already is. Remember Genesis, there's that mysterious statement, let us create man and woman in our image. Who's the our? It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is now what Saul is proclaiming. He is the Son of God. In verse 21, those 
hearing him, continued to be astounded and were saying, is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those that called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this one is the Christ. The people were astounded. Saul is preaching the gospel. He's being friendly with Christians. He's now a Christian. And people are, my translation says, they're astounded. Saul was the least likely of anyone to become a Christian. And, And as we read, a lot of people didn't believe that it was true. They thought that he must have been a spy. But Jesus changed his heart, and you never know when that's going to happen. And this is another, another piece of being encouraged. You know, I, my mom told me this. I, I, I shared a story. I think it was at the morning service a couple, three weeks ago, a month ago. I don't know. And I told a story about how I had, I had left home because my, my endeavor in life, what I wanted to do was... Simple as it may be and silly as it may sound, I wanted to hitchhike, I wanted to hop on freight trains, I wanted to travel the world on the cheap and just put my thumb out with my Jack Kerouac novel. I wanted to be a Dharma bum, I wanted to be a part of the rucksack revolution and go up in the hills and find a way to live on berries and drink creek water and just get away from this, you know? And then maybe in my, in my third, you know, about the age that I am now, I was thinking one day when I'm old, right? One day when I'm like 35, 36, I'll settle down, I'll meet a nice lady, I'll start paying taxes, that whole thing. But I wanted to get, I wanted to get out of town. And I always felt this tug. The Lord was always on my case about staying in Portland, and I was so mad about it. Remember last week we read, Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The Lord was goading me. He was bugging me. I knew that I shouldn't leave Portland. I knew there was some reason why he wanted me to stay. He didn't tell me what it was, and I rebelled. I, like Jonah, I left. And I remember, you know, my poor mom, you know, is dealing with me being in one place and being in another place and starting a job and then quitting a job and being irresponsible and hanging out with with people who were doing a, a whole lot of dirty deeds for dirt cheap. And I remember I, I, I hitchhiked down to Southern California in 2012. I stayed some time there. I got, then I, hit, I got a ride to Joshua Tree. And when I was in Joshua Tree, I caught a ride into this area of desert that's called the Victorville Desert. From where I was, it was 100 miles to the next town, which was Victorville. There was nothing. I had a cell phone with no reception. I had half a gallon of water and the boots on my feet, and that was it. And I, and I remember being, there's just this long straight road for 100 miles, it's just a long straight road. And I looked down that road and I thought, yes, this is it, this is my dream, I'm finally out here, I'm doing the Kerouac thing. Maybe, maybe I have a can of beans in my bag, but this is it, can of beans, half a gallon of water, sick. This is what I wanna do, this is gonna be an experience. I'm completely helpless out here. I am at the mercy of any stranger who might come by this desert road and give me a ride. And I, I did get a ride, but I remember, someone actually picked me up. I was wearing a, dream, a green trench coat and they picked me up at like 10 o'clock at night. I mean, when, when you're wearing a green trench coat and someone stops to pick you up in the desert at 10 o'clock at night, it's like, I don't know if I want to get in that car. But I, but I did. I got in the car. And you know what's so funny? It was a guy who, he was Eastern European. He didn't speak a word of English. I had to show him on a map where I wanted to go. And he was watching Lady and the Tramp on his phone with earbuds. And so I didn't even like talk to the guy the whole time. I was in the car with him for hours. <clears throat> It was a wild experience, but that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted, those, I wanted those stories. That was my whole endeavor in life. But I remember before I got that ride, right at this moment, 
when I felt that like, ah, I'm here, I'm in the desert, let's do this, that still small voice of the Lord that, you know, that he uses, it wasn't very still and it wasn't very small. I remember in, in the desert feeling like the Lord said to me, you are screwing this up. Stop. Go home. Go home. And I told that story a few weeks ago, and my point was completely different. My, I was making a point, and the point that I was making then is not the point that I'm making now. I shared that story, and my mom heard it. And I remember that later that week, I was at my mom's house with my family, and she said to me, I am so glad that you told that story because I prayed for you, and 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 you were hitchhiking on the East Coast, you were hitchhiking on the West Coast, you were hitchhiking in Colorado, you were in Europe, you were in Thailand, you are in all these different places, and I never knew that the Lord was like bugging you. And that was, you know, my mom, my mom was kind of communicating like that was my fault because I was praying for you daily. And she was so encouraged by the fact that even when I was so many thousands of miles away from home, her prayers were being effective and the Lord was drawing me back home. Be encouraged by that. You never know what your prayers are doing for somebody. You never know how the Lord is working in somebody's life. You have a relative, you have a sibling, you have a friend, a coworker, somebody that you're praying for them, you're praying for them, you're, and it seems, it seems fruitless. It seems futile. Be encouraged. These people were astounded because the least likely dude to ever speak the name of Jesus in anything other than a cuss word is now proclaiming the gospel to the very people he was going to imprison. No wonder they were astounded. Be encouraged. Don't give up hope. I was in the Victorville desert by myself, and the Lord was bugging me. And my mom was like, praise God. It was a very long journey, but eventually that, that the Lord tugging on my heartstrings brought me back home. And now I'm a pastor, and that's absolute, it's comical. But you never know what your prayers are going to do. Be encouraged. Nobody expected this from Saul. And not only is he proclaiming the gospel, but he's getting pushback. I mean, he's getting pushback even from Christians. Even Christians are like, I don't know about this guy. But in verse 22, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that this one is the Christ. This increased in strength. He wasn't growing in lap muscles. He was growing in power and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know that we oftentimes stutter or we hesitate, or we don't take the chance of telling somebody about the gospel, or telling somebody about Jesus, or inviting them to church. Next, week, next week's Easter, invite a bunch of people to church. It's like the one, it's, the, it's, two, it's one of the two days a year that anybody will go to church, Christmas and Easter. Just invite people. But I know that we hesitate. I know that we're, we're, it freaks us out to do that. But maybe you've experienced this. When you do do it, when you, when you shut that voice of doubt up and you step out in boldness, have you ever noticed that the strength kind of increases as you go? Have you ever experienced that? Despite the fact that Saul was experiencing doubt and hardship from people who he was proclaiming the gospel to, the more he did it, the more he increased in strength and he continued to confound people, saying this one is the Christ. So verse 23. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to put him to death. He's been a Christian for like a week, and they already want him dead. But their plot became known to Saul. 
And they were watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Did life get better for Saul when he became a Christian? Did it get easier? You know, it's funny. I mean, if you, if you read the first part of chapter 9, Saul came into Damascus like Deontay Wilder. It's a boxer. He came in big. He came in strong. He came in flexing. He came in with an entourage. He came in cocky. He came in with actual documents from the high priest that gave him permission to beat people up and put them in chains and haul them to jail and even kill them. He came into Jerusalem on top of the... He was, he was, the, he was the Pharisee's golden boy. He was top of his class. He had the equivalent of two PhDs. Everyone was sweating him. And he's leading this group into Damascus, cocky and full of himself and sure that he's going to impress his superiors. And he becomes a Christian. Nobody likes him. He loses his job. He loses his colleagues. He's a traitor now. He's a backstabber. And he has to, be, he has to hide and sneak out of a window in the middle of the night so that he won't be killed. Did life get better for Saul after he became a Christian, or did it get worse? And the answer is yes, right? This is the paradox of following Jesus. His life here on earth did not go so well for him. He lost a lot. And one of the things that we learn there is, man, you know, it, right now in North America, it's not so bad. I, I suspect it's going to get worse but we're going to need the church because outside of the church, we are to proclaim the gospel, we are to love, we are to be patient, we are to consider others better than ourselves. But in doing that, in the name of Jesus, we are going to be hated, we're going to be persecuted, we, we're going to lose our status among people. I've said this many times before, I really don't have any friends from my life before being a Christian because they all just think I'm stupid and not a whole lot of fun. And when we get together and have conversations, man, I have to talk about the Lord. He's the most, he's the biggest thing in my life. And they don't want to hear that. So there's this chasm between us. Man, there's this, there's this love that is there and it's real, but the weight of Jesus Christ squashes it. And there's a lot of people who don't want to associate with me. And when they do, they kind of do it begrudgingly. Does life get better when we become followers of Jesus? Or does it get worse? We have the entire hope of eternity to look forward to. We come to Jesus for free. We have a hope of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We have the spirit of the living God alive inside of our very souls, and the world doesn't like that. Friends, we, we're going to need each other. The only safe place for Saul was the church, and not even, not even quite yet. It took a while, and fair enough. I don't blame anybody. The dude was crazy. But we're going to need the church. If things get turned up in the culture, if they really start coming after, I mean, there's people that expect that churches might lose their tax exemption, exemption status in the next five or ten years. And fine, you know what? That's fine. I don't, I don't care. But it, if, it, if it increases, if the persecution increases, we're going to need each other. We're going to need to love each other a whole lot more. And so somebody helps Saul out. Things aren't going so well for him, and they let him out of a window so that he's not killed. 
He lost everything. He lost his job. He lost his friends. But remember what he says in Philippians chapter 3? He starts, he starts naming off his resume, how cool he was, how smart he was, how achieved he was, how much better he was than everybody else in his class. But he says, I count it all a loss. He says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He's, he says, I count it all as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And that is the beauty. That is the, that's the trade-off. Life gets better because we have someone we can never lose no matter what. And life gets harder because the world is going to hate us. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Are we, are we ready for that? Do we experience that? Do we have any taste of that at all? I have a little bit, but sometimes, you know, I read this and I'm like, I'm a wuss. Saul's been a Christian for a short amount of time and already people want him dead. I don't think I'm preaching the gospel enough. I haven't had my life actually threatened yet. I mean, you don't need to seek that out, but you know what I'm saying. His life got harder and his life got so much better. His life got so much better. So, Barnabas. Barnabas from chapter 4. Barnabas who sold property and gave the proceeds to the church. Barnabas who apparently didn't leave when there was persecution in the church. I'll, I'll start in verse 26. And so when he came to Jerusalem... He was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. So he comes to Jerusalem. And now, and now imagine this, to, to, to further the point that I was just making, he comes to Jerusalem. This is where he was educated. This is where he was the hotshot. This is where Stephen was killed. This is where he approved of Stephen's execution. He's got a lot of people here who know him. He's got a lot of people here that were probably classmates. He's got a lot of people here who were his, his professors. Probably the same people he was going to Damascus with. And here is this backstabbing traitor who's now a Christian. And he's preaching in that town. The guts that this guy had. This is tough. But even the church was skeptical of him. The church were not believing that he was a disciple. He had no friends. There was a period of time where the poor guy had no friends. He couldn't go to the church. He couldn't go to the temple. Everybody wanted him dead or wanted him at least at a distance. And so Barnabas steps up. And loving his enemy as himself, he gives Saul a chance. Acting like Jesus, Barnabas is a stud. He takes a chance. And he takes Saul and he brought him to the apostles and recounted to them that Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and that how, how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing, arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were still attempting to put him to death. <laughs> but when the brothers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria was having peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in encouragement of the Holy Spirit and it continued to multiply. And so here we have the continued truth of the way that Jesus is building his kingdom. There's persecution. Persecution for Saul was so bad that he actually had to leave town. They, they sent him back to Tarsus. But still, verse 31, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was having peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it continued to multiply. Be encouraged. 
despite the persecution, they were having peace. And my, my prayer is that the church would have this buoyancy, that we as individuals would have this buoyancy. And if I, if I may, you know, I, really like all things considered, night church ending isn't really that big of a deal. But it, but it does, in, in my darker moments, it causes me to think like, well, do I just suck at this? Should I just go back to glazing? Should, like, did, was this like an experiment? Did this just not work? Did, did people just not like me? Did, is the, or is the Lord, does it have nothing to do with that? Is the Lord just telling me like, hey, I was gonna, I put you in the ministry and I'm gonna take you out of the ministry. I'm gonna see how you handle that. It's a test of your character. I don't know, you know, I make up these, I make up these scenarios day in and day out because my brain is my brain and I'm an insomniac. And at three o'clock in the morning, you try it. You start thinking some weird stuff. Be encouraged. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why, I don't know why night, you know, the, the original idea was that night church would be a church plant of its own and maybe the Lord's not calling me to be a lead pastor. I don't care. It's none of my business. I'm just going to be obedient one day at a time. But I read this and I'm encouraged because I just try to remember despite what happens because there's crazy stuff going on, you know, and just take an honest, an honest evaluation of your own life, of the United States, of the world at large. There's weird stuff happening. And you point it out and people call you a conspiracy theorist. Or you don't believe it and conspiracy theorists call you a, I don't know, a numbskull. I don't know all the names that people call each other anymore. It's, it's confusing. There's a lot of them. But crazy stuff is happening. People are getting sick and dying. And there's war in Ukraine. And people of the United States absolutely hate each other. Trump versus Biden and red versus blue and Democrat and Republican and, and, and the list goes on. Be encouraged. And I, and, and I say that because I get sucked up into the narrative. I get sucked up into the vitriol and the hatred and the news feed and all. And every single day there's another thing to be tripping about. You know, oh, there's aliens. Oh, no, actually, we just we shot down an air balloon with a $44,000 missile. Like, what is happening in the world? It's ridiculous. Be encouraged. The church was having peace. Saul's crawling out of a window. He shows up on, on Monday flexing, ready to put people in jail. And in a couple of weeks, so many people want him dead that he has to sneak out of a window. I mean, life is unpredictable. Is it not? Have you experienced that? Have you, have you experienced a, a, like a sudden reversal? Things are going a certain way, and then there's a death. There's a bankruptcy. There's a divorce. There's a whatever we're jobless we can't find places to live we we lose loved ones there's relational atrophy all over the place life is crazy friends it's nothing new and and my consistent burden and my consistent prayer and my consistent hope is that we would be a people that do not allow those circumstances to be used by the devil to tell us that God is indifferent malevolent or non-existent but that we would learn from Scripture, from the life of Jesus himself, from the life of everyone who's ever followed him in the midst of the chaos, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria was having peace. Do you, do you have peace in the, in, in the middle of the storm? Jesus was on a boat in the middle of a storm and he was sleeping, you know? 
There's a time to move. There's a time to act. There's a time to wake up. There's a time to be diligent. But all of that was taken care of. Jesus wasn't worried about the storm. He knew where his hope was set. He knew who his father was. And we know who our father is. It's wild. You know, I didn't, I didn't mention this this morning because I really didn't know how to put it, but I've been thinking about it all day. When Jesus gets into Jerusalem the, and the triumphal entry and the Pharisees tell him, Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up. And he says, I'm going to tell you what. If the disciples shut up, if all these people shut up, the rocks themselves will cry out. What that means, at least, is that Jesus is king, and it's going to be declared. Because God the Father has Jesus' back. And if you are a co-heir with Christ, you get what Christ gets. You get the inheritance with Christ. That means that Yahweh, the God of the universe, the God who's holding the sun up right now, has your back. Be encouraged. You can deal with your economy. You can deal with your emotions. You can deal with what's happening in your life. We can pray them. We can cry about them. We can confess them. We can share them with each other. That's what the Psalms are all about. But be encouraged. Don't end there. Preach to yourself. Remind yourself. All things work for the good. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comprehension. And the deeper and deeper and deeper that that gets into your head and into your soul and into your heart, despite persecution and and throwing one of your best friends out of the window to save his life, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria was having peace. And despite all that persecution, it was still being built up. People were looking at what was happening to the church and they were like, yeah, I'm in. I'm in. I want this Jesus. I want this Jesus. You can't beat that. You can't ever beat somebody who has a heart that says, I want this Jesus. There's nothing you can do to a person like that. God has their back. And so going on in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, the church continued to multiply. I didn't start a timer, so I don't know where I'm at. We're just going to have to deal with it. But verse, verse 32. Now, it happened that as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise up, make your bed. And immediately he rose up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And now in Joppa, so we lose, we lose Saul. Saul goes away to Tarsus. He'll show up again later. I hope that you continue to, to, to study Acts on your own. Read the rest of the book, see how it ends. But now we come back to Peter. And Peter was traveling through those regions and he came to the saints who lived at Lydda. Lydda is about, was about 10 miles northwest of Jerusalem and there was a man named Aeneas who had been paralyzed. But notice it says that he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. People who believed in Jesus, who, people who were holy, people who were set apart, people who believed the gospel, people who had heard it and embraced the name of Jesus Christ for their personal, as their personal king and their personal savior. And now he goes to Joppa, verse 36. Joppa is right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. 
Lydda is 10 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Joppa is 10 miles northwest of Lydda. It's right on the coast. And there was a disciple, again, a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charity, which she did continually. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and she died. And when they washed her body and they laid her in the upper room, and since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, pleading him, do not delay in coming to us. And so Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him to the upper room. And all of the widows stood beside him, crying and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Imagine being dead coming back from the dead, and the first person you see is Peter. <laughs> That'd be kind of a bummer. <laughs> Maybe he was very attractive. I don't, I don't know. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it happened that he stayed there many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So, so notice this. This is, this is so cool, and it's, it's, it's easy to miss. So Peter goes to Lydda, and then he goes to Joppa. And it, so it says in verse 32, the saints who lived at Lydda. And then in verse 36, a disciple in Joppa named Tabitha. And then in verse 41, he took her hand and he raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. There's saints all over the place. There's disciples all over the place. What Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the, end, the other ends of the world, and it's already happening. And it, it's likely that these disciples in Joppa and in Lydda heard the gospel, maybe, maybe just generally from people who scattered in Jerusalem, the people that fled from the persecution in Jerusalem when Stephen was killed, but it might have specifically been Philip. Remember, Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's, he's way down south. And he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch hears the gospel and gets saved, and the Holy Spirit snatches Philip up, totally mysterious, no idea what that means, and then Philip ends up 20, mile, 20 miles north of where he was in Azotus, and he goes on from there, chapter 8, verse 40, passing through, he kept proclaiming the gospel to all the cities in the region until he came to Caesarea. He would have passed through Lydda. He might have passed through Joppa. And maybe there he proclaimed the gospel to these people. And so there was some disciples. But not everyone was a disciple. Because Peter heals Aeneas. And look at the result. They believed in the Lord. Verse 35. And then he heals Tabitha and Joppa in verse 42. And many believed in the Lord. Somebody passed through Lydda. Somebody passed through Joppa. They proclaimed the gospel. Some people heard it and got saved. Some people might have heard it and not believed it, not embraced Jesus. But then Peter shows up a little bit later and more people believed in the Lord. And this is the point of the miracles. This is the point of our work, that they turned to the Lord. This is what they did. This is what Jesus does. This is what he's continuing to do. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep teaching people about Jesus. Philip was there or somebody was there, but then Peter came through 
and more people got saved. Baby, I'm almost done, I swear. I'm all, oh, she's so cute, even when she cries. I love you. Oh, man. That's how Angie and I wake up every hour and a half right there. Woo! <laughs> yeah. Where was I? So keep preaching the gospel. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep being encouraged. Keep believing. The way that Jesus operates, friends, this is it. Like, night church is done. So I might see you Sunday mornings, but this is it. If there's one thing that I could say, if there's one thing that I hope to leave with the last two years of doing night church, be encouraged. Believe in Jesus. Be encouraged by him. Trust him. He doesn't make sense. I know. He doesn't. But he's so good. The cross doesn't make sense. Creating, building, striving for a kingdom that will last forever. And the strategy for that being submission and philanthropy and loving your enemies as yourself and considering others greater than yourself, that's not the way that we do it. We use people. We climb the corporate ladder. We cut throat when we can. We stomp on the guy that's below us so we can get one more step ahead. It's the upside-down kingdom. It's the opposite of that. Everything that Jesus does, just about, makes no sense to us. And I'm imploring you, continue to trust him. I know that some of you feel like you're at a dead end right now. Those of you who are here this morning and, and, and heard about our friend who's maybe going to be deported back to Angola where he's guaranteed to be killed. And our government's like, well, sorry, bud, you gotta go. And, we're, and there's a fight for that. I know some of you may not know the story, but those are the types of situations where you're like, God, what are you doing? What is happening? How is this actually occurring? Don't let the devil convince you to throw Jesus away because things are hard. Follow him into the chaos. Follow him into the abyss. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comprehension, and it happened step by step. Look at verse 43. And it happened that Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. That's a small detail, and it may not mean anything to you, but it's actually quite profound because one of the things that we have seen Jesus through his spirit chipping away at more and more and more and more is the eradication of prejudice and the eradication of racism. The Jewish people did not like the Samaritans. They hated, I'm being nice, they hated the Samaritans. They thought they were half-breeds. They thought they were disgusting. And the Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. And the Gentiles hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans hated the Gentiles. And the Jews didn't like the Gentiles. There was so much prejudice. There was so much, there was so much racism in those days. It's not a North American invention. It's been happening because it's a human sin. It's a, it's a sin problem. But, it's, but that, that prejudice starts to get chipped away. Jesus said, go to Samaria. Jesus said, go to Judea. Jesus said, go to the other parts of the world. That means the Gentiles. And that's exactly what he meant all the way in the very beginning. When Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, the Lord said to him, through your family, every family on earth will be blessed. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, every ethnicity, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And this guy, whoever he was, Simon, being a tanner, would have been sort of on the outskirts of town because a tanner is someone who tans animal hides. You're dealing with the dead bodies of animals. It's ceremonially unclean. It's gross. We don't talk with people like that. We don't deal with people like that. We certainly don't stay 
with people like that. But Simon's prejudice is getting worked on more and more and more. P- Simon Peter, I mean. And it happened that he stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. And, and I would say go home and at least read chapter 10 of the book of Acts because the entire chapter is basically reserved for the, the final blow, the final word from the Lord, grabbing Peter by the scruff of his collar and saying, stop it with this prejudice thing. Stop. Don't call anything unclean that I have called clean. Go to Cornelius' house, who is a Gentile. He's a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort and preach the gospel to him. And Cornelius gets saved. And in chapter 10, verse 34, listen to what Peter says. And opening his mouth, Peter says, I most truly comprehend now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the one who fears him and does righteousness is welcome to him. He finally gets it. You know, this is a leader of the, this is the leader of the early church. And he says, now I finally get it. And again, finally, and I'll be done. Be encouraged. All of us have hurts. All of us have hangups. All of us have habits and proclivities that we shouldn't. All of us have a habitual sin. And I, and, I know that, and I know that you hate it. I mean, you know, you think something, say something, look at something, do something. And, and you're immediately like, dang it, dang it, dang it. Friends, be encouraged. Jesus loves you. His grace is new every morning. Simon Peter was getting worked on bit by bit. He went and checked in on the Samaritans when Philip proclaimed the gospel in Samaria, and now he's staying with a man who would have been ostracized because of his profession. And as you will see in chapter 10, Peter continues to be worked on by the Lord. Be encouraged. The church is being built. The Lord loves you. Jesus is trustworthy. We don't always know what he's doing. (laughs) We don't always know why he's doing it, but believe in him. Be encouraged. Have peace. The God of the entire universe is for you. Even the rocks would cry out, Jesus is king. That's, That's your Lord and Savior. He's good and he's trustworthy. So be encouraged in his name. Amen?